Welcome to Faith Seeking Understanding. My name is John Green, the host of Faith Seeking Understanding. And we're here on a, what is a glorious morning in Western North Carolina where I live. I hope it's the same where you are. I hope it stays this way throughout the day today and we can enjoy being in the sun and out and about a little bit more than we have been with this COVID uh, lockdown. Hopeful that that we're beginning to get back to some sense of normalcy. And as we move towards that, suddenly all that was shattered in the last several days. In Minneapolis, there was a black man who was subdued by police. And then one of the policemen held him down with his knee on the back of his throat. He became unresponsive. He was begging the policeman to got off of him because he couldn't breathe. He became unresponsive, and yet the policeman stayed there for three more minutes while he was unresponsive. And ultimately, he died. There were three other policemen on the spot at the same time, and not a single one of them acted in defense of the man who said multiple times that he couldn't breathe. It's a horrifying situation brings up so many racial images. The white policeman with his knee on the back of the throat of a black man until he dies. It's an abuse of power. It's racial injustice. It's a horrible thing. I don't know a single person who would, who would not condemn that officer and what he did wouldn't condemn also the three other officers who stood by and did nothing Why this man died. It's a horrible tragedy. And we as a nation mourn that loss. But then what's happened in the aftermath is people began to protest in Minneapolis. And they began to protest in other places based on the, the long history of racism that's marked out the United States a stain that, that tore the country apart and hundreds of thousands of lives were lost in the years between 1861 and 1865 and then ultimately concluding in the death of the man who many blamed for that divide and that division because of his policies, Abraham Lincoln. And so the nation healed at some level from that, but, but not completely, obviously. Because, again, in the 1960s, more had to happen in the Civil Rights Acts in the early 60s. The work of Martin Luther King and others to point to that systemic racism and, and to, to say this has to stop. And, and they achieved much, and they achieved it mostly in nonviolent ways. Until another man, James Earl Ray, decided violence was the way to stop. Dr. Martin Luther King and shot and killed him in Memphis. I remember those times when I was a kid growing up in the South. I remember those vividly and I remember them well. And I remember a sense of fear that I experienced of the unknown of, of is this violence going to spread? Is it going to spread to my neighborhood, to where I am? And as we've watched the last couple of nights, as we've watched these events moved from what were beginning were protests to violence, rioting, looting, 
it's taken on a different cast. And it's not taken on a different cast because of those who were protesting. It's taken on a different cast because those who have come in and moved this in a different direction, moved what was a protest to burning buildings and rioting and looting and moving towards violence. Fanning the flames of righteous anger and righteous indignation and using that in a way that brings about something else. Can we heal from that? How do we heal from that? And I think the church can show the way. And I think Pentecost, it, there's a reason I'm bringing this up at Pentecost because it's happening, for one. But second, because I believe that, that Pentecost has something to say. When I first was ordained, I was ordained into what was known then as the Anglican Mission in America, the AMIA. We were closely connected with the church in Rwanda. We began to be connected with the church in Rwanda in 1997, officially. Three years after an incredible genocide had happened there, one group of Rwandese, Hutu, had murdered, slaughtered horribly, mostly with machetes, almost never with guns. They had slaughtered. In 90 days, 800,000 other Rwandese, those who were Tutsi, they were divided into those tribes, and they were divided by white people. The Belgians and the French had determined that it was too difficult to keep up with the, who was a Hutu and who was a Tutsi because it was fluid. It was based on typically on what people had. If you had more than 10 cattle, you were a Tutsi. If you were had fewer than ten cattle, you were a Hutu. Hutus had been oppressed by the Tutsi ever since that country, that land had been discovered by Johann Speck, discovered meaning by white people in the eighteen nineties. The first time first time we know of that a white man had been to Rwanda. And then it began to be colonized, of course, because that's what you do, apparently. You can't just say, let's look at those people and let's observe those people and let's see how they organize society. You know, you have to organize society for them as though there were no society there before. And so it was colonized and organized. And it became too difficult to keep up with this because it was fluid to move between being a Hutu and a Tutsi. And so what happened was, Western Europeaners decided it's too difficult. And so they decided that if you're a Hutu today, you're a Hutu forever. And if you're a Tutsi today, you're a Tutsi forever because we needed to give you identity cards and we needed to keep track of you a little bit better than that. And so they were segregated and their history was, was reverse engineered on top of them. This is who they were. And it, there's no great evidence for the history that Western Europeans wrote about Rwanda and the people of Rwanda. And so what they did, though, was they decided that the Tutsi, because they were wealthy and because they got along well with Westerners, were born to rule. They were noble race. They were probably the people from the Garden of Eden. They were the first people created, and, and they were favored particularly by God. And, and the proof of that was they were favored by the Western Europeans. And so they began to work with them, and they began to put them in all the places of leadership in the country. And 
you know, everybody likes to be told things like you're noble, you're born to rule. And so what they did was they lorded it over the others. In spite of the fact that they represented only about 14% of the population, they lorded it over the other 86% of the population. And they kept them from um, universities. They kept them from government jobs. They kept them from success because it benefited them not to. And so what ends up happening then is in, in the 1960s, the early 1960s, the French, who were in control there at that time, decided to step away from that control and to, to order uh, the next election to be free, free, fair, and open. Well, when you're only representing 14% of the population, chances are not good you're going to win elections. And so what happened was it reversed. The Hutu became in power. And they then began to keep the Tutsi away. And not only that, they began to kill them. And so a mass exodus began in the 1960s. And then in the early 1990s, a group of those exiles who had been in the Ugandan army and other armies banded together, went to um, a rebel leader in Uganda and said, we'll help you get your country back. But the quid pro quo for that is that you'll help us get our country back. And so after Idi Amin was thrown over, they turned their attention towards Rwanda and the panic that set in in Rwanda was what happened in 1994 when those 800,000 people were murdered. When we first went there five years later, there was um, prisoners everywhere. And the country was truly a police state. It was frightening, frankly, to be there because you would go only outside of Kigali, the capital. You could just barely get outside sort of the, the main precincts of Kigali and you'd pass through a checkpoint and there'd be 14-year-olds there with, I don't know whether they're automatic or semi-automatic weapons, and you pass through that checkpoint. And then you wouldn't go very much further and you go through another checkpoint. But then what we were doing was we were doing the most macabre thing that you could ever imagine. We went to visit the genocide sites where churches were the primary sites where the priests had told the people they could come and have sanctuary and instead they were slaughtered in the church with the priest watching. It's a horrible thing. When we went, there was uh, there was an international tribunal at Arusha in Tanzania trying the, the perpetrators, the leaders, as it were, and, and their job was to inflame the passions of those under them. And so what they did was they had convinced them of two main things, and that is the Tutsi they were fighting against were not actual human beings. They were cockroaches. They were in Yenzi was the word. And then they were also told that they were devils that they had tails. It's in spite of the fact that there was a lot of intermarriage between Hutu and Tutsi, but, but people being people were willing to believe the worst about people who are different from us, who have things other than us, and their passions were inflamed, and so then with French-supplied machetes, they hacked one another to death horrible situation. That by that point when we had gone, the, the Tutsi exiles had come back and they had 
taken over the levers of power, but there was some power sharing at that time, but there was a lot of mistrust and a lot of suspicion. And, and the expectation existed among almost everybody there that there would be further violence, further reprisals, and that, that ultimately what would happen is those Tutsi would turn that on the Hutu and they would do to them what had been done to them. And then they began to do a different sort of thing. They began to use a different procedure. Spurred by the government and the churches, they returned to an old form of tribal justice before people like me, white people, got involved. They returned to that tribal thing. And I can remember riding with Frida Collini, who was the, to go see her parents. Frida was the wife of the archbishop, the Anglican archbishop of Rwanda at that time. And Frida and I traveled a lot together. We went to see her parents and couldn't, they were not there. And so what we did was we drove into the sort of town, if you will, um, and there on a stump was her father speaking. And what he was doing was announcing that the formation of these local courts of justice explaining how that would go and, and what would happen would be that they would bring the accused before that tribunal or anybody that wanted to come. And that person had to sit and listen to the stories of their victims or the relatives of their victims. And you know what's amazing? It worked. It worked completely. Rwanda came back to peace and they forgave, and they moved on. There was a man named Gerard Prunier, who was a Belgian social scientist, and he wrote a book on Rwanda, and, and it's an interesting read, to say the least. It was written right after the genocide. And the conclusion that Prunier comes to at the end of the four is, how can all this come together again? How can they restore peace and unity in Rwanda? And the answer was, one man has to die. I remember reading that as we went to Rwanda for the first time as we sat on the plane. I remember reading that. And, and Prunier said, somebody symbolically has to die. Somebody at the top has to die. And I believe that'll pull everything together. And I remember when I read that sentence, I just began to weep. Because that one man had died. That man died in the most unjust murder, I guess, if you want to call it that, ever in history, or that ever will be, the only innocent, truly innocent and righteous man, Jesus Christ, put to death on a cross. That man had died. And so the, the basis for those local courts was actually that principle. It was a move not towards punishment and retribution. It was a move towards peace and reconciliation. That was the goal. And so wonderful things happened there. And so to bring that into what I want to say today, at Pentecost, I'm going to do several things on Pentecost, but I felt like this was really important for today. I want to focus on one of the most important aspects of Pentecost, and that is that they were gathered together in one place that morning. And they were gathered there in one accord. That's in Acts 2, 1 to 11. They're gathered together. 
in one place, in one accord. What Pentecost celebrates is called Shavuot in the Hebrew. It, what, what it celebrated at Pentecost in Jewish tradition is the giving of the law at Mount Sinai, among other things. It's also a harvest festival when the first fruits are brought to the temple. And it's a huge celebration because it's the fulfillment of God's promise to the people to bring them into a land flowing with milk and honey. And then he names seven specific things that they'll grow there that they haven't had before and that they didn't know. And so what happens at the time when it was mostly an agrarian society, what happened would be that as soon as a shoot of one of those seven came out of the ground, the farmer would tag that, each of those seven things. And then when time for Pentecost came, Shavuot, they would gather up those seven that they had tagged as the first ones out of the ground. And then they would take them and offer them to the Lord there in celebration of the goodness of God for what he had done for them. What began at Passover was finished at Shavuot when they could celebrate having been in the land and enjoying the fruits of the land. So that's one of the things that they celebrate. The other is the giving of the Torah. And the final thing, which I didn't honestly know until pretty recently, is they celebrate that day as the, they say that David died at Shavuot. <clears throat> And so they, that's another part of what's celebrated there, the, the king whose line Jesus would come to fulfill and take over and be on that throne of David forever. That's the day that Jesus, or the day that David was supposed to have died. And so it, that's a part of that celebration. And so we celebrate King Jesus on this day. But the giving of Torah at Sinai it's, it's the, the traditions and interpretation that's grown up around it are richer than almost anything you could ever imagine. And, and the church knew that intuitively. The church knew that the giving of the Spirit at Jerusalem on that day at Pentecost was, was, a, it was the second most important holiday in the church year, in the beginning of the church, only behind Easter because it's where the church was formed in the same ways that the, the community was formed at Mount Sinai. In Exodus 19, it's something that, that it's easy for us to overlook, but, but it's not that easy for Jews to overlook. Is It says they've come to Sinai. The people have come to Sinai. They've passed through the Red Sea. They've gone through the experience at Massa and or at Mara, where the waters have been bitter. They pass through the first half piece of difficulty they'll have as a people at that place because they need water. And now they've come, and it says on the third new moon, after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain. And it's not apparent to us when we read this, but it's incredibly apparent to the rabbis that something remarkable happens there. And here's the reason they say that, that Israel encamped before the mountain. While Moses went up to God, the Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my commandments, you will be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. 
and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you shall speak to the people of Israel. And so what they see in that is something extraordinary just happened that God is now at this point in time announcing the formation of the people and his acceptance of them as his people. And so what they find there is where it says they encamped in the wilderness, there Israel encamped before the mountain. What they find in that is something extraordinary. And that is, this is the first time they, as a people, not groups of individuals, have done something together. The language there is very specific as to they're one. And it's that unity among the people in that encampment that's the signal to God that this is the time. This is the moment that he had been waiting for. They've passed through Marah where there was division and now they've come to Sinai and they, Israel, encamped before the mountain. And now God accepts them as his people and gives to them his Torah. Gives them the law. So to this day, it's imperative in Judaism, observant Judaism, that all men, women, and children gather together in the synagogue and they hear the Ten Commandments read in the synagogue. All of Israel is to gather again because they're supposed to celebrate that day in the same way. It's the same thing we're supposed to be doing with communion. We're supposed to go back and, and remember, and that's a specific kind of remembering. It's a remembering that puts yourself in the shoes of the people that day as though you were there as well because the understanding they have is that all of Israel from beginning to end of time were gathered there at that mountain, not just those who happened to be privileged to live at that moment, but all Israel before and after that. That would include people like Abraham and the other fathers. And they gathered together is what they say, and they were all there. And the beautiful thing is, is that the morning after they prepared themselves and were prepared for the third day, which is said again and again, that what happens is, is that, that they say that the people overslept. We'll get into that a little bit more <clears throat> later in the week, but that the people overslept. But when they got there, God was already there waiting for them and he greeted them as though they were his bride. This is a marriage ceremony that's taking place. They're taking vows with God there in that place. He's making them his family, his people, his children, his sons and daughters. And so now they're obliged to gather and hear the law in the same way because they're celebrating that day. Everything is collapsing into that moment. When they all celebrate together and they come together on the celebration. And so... There's a beginning of something there, and it's a gathering of people, and they're going to gather into the land. And so what they, they celebrate in all the festivals is the gathering of God's people and the placement of them into the land that he had given them. So it's a gathering of everything that's celebrated, but it's in unity. It's with the idea of a wedding in mind. And so at Pentecost, here we, the church, come, and what are we celebrating? We're celebrating this gathering of something that's amorphous at this moment in time. There's no church. There's no anything. It's just people who believe in Jesus, and they've gathered together on the day of Pentecost, which is one of the obligatory feasts for Jews to come to Jerusalem and celebrate. And so they're gathered together there in this place 
And what happens? Suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues of fire appeared on them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now they were dwelling in Jerusalem, the people who were staying there for the festival, Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in its own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, aren't all of these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arab Arabians, we hear them telling in their own tongues the mighty works of God. That gathering at the foot of Mount Sinai where all the Jews heard the voice of God now come and they hear this mighty rushing wind in Jerusalem. So all these people come and again they hear. They've been divided and scattered all over the world in the various diaspora, but they've come to Jerusalem. And in Jerusalem, when the mighty rushing wind comes, they come as well. They're not afraid. They were bewildered. And they came and they began to hear these Galileans speaking. And what are they speaking about? They're telling the mighty works of God. And the point of the church, the point of that gathering and everything else going forward was it was the giving of the spirit to, to know and understand not just the Torah, but the world around them and Jesus and his work to proclaim him, to proclaim the resurrection. He is the incarnate word of God. I understand Torah because I know Jesus and I see his obedience and I see the way he lived his life in obedience to the word of God and in doing so becomes the word of God. And so the spirit now is poured out on those who were assembled that day and we don't know how many there were, but we know that they were poured out on the disciples. Now apostles to speak. And so they were gathered, but the point of the gathering was to scatter. The point was what Jesus had told them, the last thing he told them before the ascension, go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you, and behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. Towards the end of John's gospel, the week after, or the day after the uh, crucifixion, remember, Jesus comes to the disciples who are behind locked doors for fear of the Jews, and there's a lot of fear then. There's a lot of fear now. And he comes, and he stands among them, and he says, Peace be with you. And then he proved who he was by showing his hands and his side, and the disciples were glad. And Jesus said again to them after that, Peace be with you as the Father has sent me, even so I'm sending you. So the first covenant was a matter of gathering. The second covenant was a matter of scattering. And then Jesus said this. He breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. So there's a... Receive the Holy Spirit. 
on that first mini Pentecost. And then on the day of Pentecost, seven weeks later, comes the sound like a mighty rushing wind. Jesus comforting his disciples. He's giving them authority to forgive in that reception of the Holy Spirit. And then on Pentecost, the mighty rushing wind replaces that of Jesus breathing on his disciples. And so we've gone from the giving of the Torah to the giving of the Spirit, from the gathering of God's people into the land to the scattering of God's people purposefully around the earth. It's not a diaspora. It's a scattering, an intentional scattering, like was given in a commandment right in the beginning to Adam and Eve to go and be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And, and now the disciples of Jesus are to do the same with his word and his teaching. But they're to do it as one. And then just as there's a wedding celebrated at Mount Sinai, so is a wedding celebrated in connection with Pentecost. It's the making of God's people one with him, as in one flesh. But an infilling of God's Holy Spirit in sort of the same thing that we talk about with a man and woman becoming one flesh in marriage. Now God and his people are made one flesh because he removed a heart of stone and gives them a heart of flesh by the outpouring of his Holy Spirit. And then what do we await? The eschatological marriage supper of the Lamb. when we come together and celebrate our union with him. So our message today is put your trust in him. Whatever you're feeling this day, go to Jesus. He is the solution for all you're feeling, whether it's fear, whether it's anxiety, whether it's the, the sense of oppression from racism, from any other ism, you want to come to the solution is found at the cross is found in Jesus and it's found in receiving his Holy Spirit which is a spirit of peace peace be with you all the injustices of the world will not be undone in this world we live in an unjust world a world so unjust that it crucified the only innocent man who ever lived. But that crucifixion, that death, has extraordinary meaning by his resurrection from the dead and the outpouring of the Spirit on Pentecost to make his people one, as he and the Father are one, in response to Jesus' prayer. And we know his prayer was heard and it was answered. Pentecost is the answer to the prayer to make his people one. Let us not allow anyone to divide us because we are one in him. Our unity is only in him. Doesn't mean we shouldn't seek to redress and to, to, to strive for justice and mercy. Those things are important, always have been for us to work towards. But let us do it in the way that Jesus did and the way that Jesus commanded. You've been listening to Faith Seeking Understanding. Thank you for being here today. If you've got any comments or questions, please feel free to interact on the Facebook page, which will a link to which will be posted below in the description of this. I hope you have a blessed week and continue to pray for the church, pray for the world, and I appreciate your prayers for me as well.